I have a very strong visual image in my mind of people crowding into this apartment in an incredibly difficult time and feeling a sense of empowerment, encouragement, support. Yeah, like everything seems so awful, but here's somebody who's making sense of it and perhaps showing like a positive to it. But it sounds like then at some point that's not the message anymore. Welcome to Jewish History Unpacked, where we do exactly what it sounds like. Unpack awesome stories in Jewish history. I'm Yael Steiner, and my childhood dream was to stay in school forever. And I'm Jonathan Schwab, and I am in school forever. This week, Yael, it's your turn to tell me something. So what do you have for us today? Before we get into the actual story, I'm going to ask you to imagine something. Mm-hmm. Imagine if Van Gogh, who I'm assuming you know who he is. I've heard of him, yeah. Okay. Imagine if Van Gogh, in the middle of his life, each week had decided to paint something that reflected the week's current events. But it wasn't just an actual literal depiction of the week's current events. It was an artistic interpretation of how those events made him feel or how they impacted his community. Mm -hmm. Today, we're going to talk about an individual Mm-hmm. Rabbi Klonimus Kalman Shapira, mm-hmm. who did very much the same as I just proposed Van Gogh might have done. Each week in the Warsaw Ghetto, he prepared a sermon on the weekly Torah portion, and his sermons spoke directly to what life was like without actually telling us what life was like. Wow. He didn't say, this week in the ghetto, there was a deportation, or this week in the ghetto— We didn't have enough bread. Mm -hmm. But he would pull stories from the weekly portion, whether about Abraham or Moses, and the way in which he would tell them gives us a glimpse into exactly what was happening in the ghetto that week. And do we have other sources also keeping track? This week there was a deportation, things like that. Thank God we have a tremendous historical record of what went on in the Warsaw Ghetto from both subsequent testimonies of people who lived there, and also because of the work of Emanuel Ringelblum, who was a young historian who realized in the midst of the terrible tragedies that were unfolding in Warsaw that one day people are going to need to know about this, mm-hmm. and took it upon himself to create a historical archive. The historical archive was called Oneg Shabbos, which literally means in Yiddish, the enjoyment or the glory of Shabbos. Uh And the reason why he called it that was in order to mask what the group's real goal was. I think he wanted people around him and certainly the Nazis to think that it was just a group of people getting together to enjoy each other's company on Shabbos Uh to the extent that that was allowed at the beginning of the ghetto. And what Ringelblum did was appoint a group of collectors, they were known as Zamlers in Yiddish, who went around the ghetto and collected not only stories, but actual historical documents, pamphlets, newsletters, invitations to weddings, gatherings, underground meetings, mafia proceedings, and had these Zamlers collect and archive this material And when Ringelblum realized the likelihood that the ghetto would be completely liquidated, he had his group assemble those documents in three different packages and bury them in three different places around the ghetto in the hopes that they would be discovered ultimately. 
after the war. Wow. And the sermons, how did those survive? Or that was part of this archive? Ringelblum was a secular historian, but we believe that he was connected to Rabbi Shapira by one of his Zamlers, who was a religious Jew. Mm-hmm. And Rabbi Shapira gave over his manuscripts, not only of the sermons, but of other books that he had written to the Ringelblum archive. There's so much to talk about, even just in what you started us off with, of yeah. this notion of like, awareness that they were living in a historical time and preserving documents for the future. That's really incredible. There are so many different stories that we could unpack here. There's spiritual resistance of Rabbi Shapira's determination to bring his followers and his community closer to Torah and closer to faith even under the most dire circumstances. Mm-hmm. There is the intellectual resistance of Ringelblum and his team in assembling this documentation and the knowledge in the moment that people in the future might not be able to comprehend what is happening here. Mm-hmm. And then there is really the story of the everyday lives of the people who lived in the ghetto and how they just got through the day. Yeah. Which one are we going down, or is it all three? We're going to focus today on Rabbi Shapira. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to take a few steps back because I I really have overloaded you with a ton of information. Rabbi Shapira was born in 1889 to a Hasidic family. He became the Rebbe of a town called Piazetsna Mm -hmm. when he was a young man. And he amassed a rather large group of followers because of his scholarship, but also because of his temperament and the kind of person that he was. What kind of person was he? He was someone who really believed in the intellectual growth of every person. And even in the ghetto, when there were so many different types of Jews piled on top of each other and people could be suspicious of one another. He was the type of person that spoke to every type of Jew, from Hasidic to agnostic. One of the first books that he wrote was something called Chovot HaTalmidim, which is the obligations of the student. Uh And while that sounds very much like a mandate, what it really is is a treatise on opening your mind and being curious about the world. I'm guessing that unfortunately where the story goes is that he doesn't survive the ghetto or the Holocaust. He does not, nor does Ringelblum, Mm -hmm. nor do a majority of the Zomlers who were part of the Onik Shabbos archive. Mm -hmm. The reason why we actually even know that this archive exists is that there were a handful, really no more than a few people involved in Odin Shabbos who did survive the war. Uh-huh. And those people remembered the location of one oh, wow. cache of documents. The, oh, so it's not do- like we just happened upon it. Like, we wouldn't even know where these things were. Not only wouldn't we know, per- we actually mm-hmm. don't know. Where the other ones are. Yeah, Ringelblum wow. insisted that the documents be buried in three different locations. Mm-hmm. And in order not to have his endeavor discovered by the Nazis, he had really kept the members of his group apart from one another. Like, mm-hmm. many of the wow. Zomlers did not yeah. know who the other Zomlers were because that limited the chance that the Nazis would discover them and what they were trying to do. So 
of the handful of people that survived, one or maybe a few of them recalled where one cache of documents had been hidden. Mm -hmm. And in 1946, that cache of documents was unearthed. Unfortunately, the type of box that those documents had been hidden in was not watertight. Oh, no. And those documents were found to have little or no utility. They were illegible. And Mm -hmm. we don't know what was in there, which is a tremendous, tremendous shame. There were, however, two other caches of documents. No one who survived knew or remembered where they were. One cache has not been discovered to this day. It is possible that at some time in the future, someone in Warsaw will uncover a treasure trove Mm -hmm. of Jewish historical documents that could illuminate so much for us. There is so much potential there. I really do hope that one day that does happen and that those documents are intact. The second cache, which is where the writings of Rabbi Shapiro were found, among many other thousands of documents, thank God, that did survive, Uh was discovered in 1950 by a Polish construction worker who was clearing out by accident, clearing out the rubble of the ghetto. Mm. These documents, the ones that survived, actually survived because they were kept in tin milk containers. Mm -hmm. So I don't know when this worker discovered these milk tins. He easily could have disposed of them. Yeah. It sounds so similar to the story of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I think were discovered around the same really important documents that were discovered by accident, by someone who just sort of came across them and then had some inkling that it might be important. And that is so very much my hope for the third cache of documents. The manuscripts that Rabbi Shapira provided were taken by Rabbi Huber Band to the Onik Shabbos people Mm -hmm. and ultimately included, luckily, in this second cache. We call it the second cache because it was the second one we found. Mm -hmm. And now have really been studied by so many scholars and have brought so much illumination to what life in the ghetto was like, particularly spiritual life. Was he recognized as really important at the time, or is his importance that we have his work? So, a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. He was quite revered as a Hasidic Rebbe, um, as the Piazetchna Rebbe, and he had written, as I mentioned, this book, uh, Chovot HaTalmidim, and some other manuscripts. And he also took the time in the ghetto while he was writing these sermons to edit and improve upon previous manuscripts that he has written Uh that were also included in the archive that we also have. Did he disseminate those at the time, or the first people to read them were the people who discovered them? That's a really good question. I know certain of his writings, Chovot HaTalmidim among them, were disseminated publicly, Uh prior to the war or maybe during the war, but I don't know about the other manuscripts that he edited at that time. And it's also clear that the sermons that he wrote each week, he intended to be included in one manuscript because it wasn't simply that we found notes jotted down of the sermons that he gave each week, but he did himself collect them into a book that we now know as the Eish Kodesh, which means holy fire, and is now a name that people use to refer to Rabbi Shapiro. They call him the Eish Kodesh, which was never a name he gave himself. 
nor was it a name that he ascribed to the writings. He called the writings, once collated, Torah from the Years of Wrath, which is a very evocative title. Yeah, I got goosebumps hearing that name. And speaks very much to his feelings about what was going on Mm. in the ghetto. Wrath is such an interesting word and leads us into one of the more philosophical elements of Rabbi Shapiro's writings. Mm -hmm. Wrath indicates to me the imposition of some kind of punishment. It sounds like that's God's wrath. Right. It's not the years of tragedy. It's not Mm -hmm. the years of sadness or the years of destruction or persecution, but it's wrath, which Mm -hmm. I agree with you, sounds like it could only come from God. Yeah. That title— And what Rabbi Shapira had to say about each weekly Torah portion is what leads many to deem him the father or the arbiter of theodicy. Mm. Theodicy, for anyone who doesn't know, because I certainly didn't know until I was an adult, (laughs) is the justification of God's existence despite evil, Mm -hmm. or more simply put, how do we acknowledge a God that lets terrible things happen to us? Or why do bad things happen to good people? Yeah. I've heard people use that last one. Theodicy, why do bad things happen to good people if there is a God? The first time I ever heard the word theodicy was in the context of a class that was being offered. And I thought the class was just about the odyssey, like Homer's book. I had the same exact experience. (laughs) And I had heard the term many times before I saw it actually written out, and it's not spelled the same way as Odyssey. No, no. At all. And the first time I saw it in print, I didn't know what what word it yeah, was, it, even I though I, I heard really, the term. I was really scared to ask anyone what it meant for a very long mm-hmm. time, but Rabbi Shapira is heavily associated with this concept of mm-hmm. theodicy. And that association really grows out of the content of the sermons that he prepared in the ghetto. Uh, I want to take a step back and just talk practically about how these sermons were delivered. Mm -hmm. In 1939, when certain Jews were ghettoized in Warsaw, Rabbi Shapira began hosting Sabbath services in the small apartment that he had in the ghetto, which— And he wasn't from Warsaw, like he was moved from the area. That's a great question. I'm not sure at what point he had relocated from Piazetsna to Warsaw. That is, mm-hmm. um, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. He held Sabbath services in his apartment. Some weeks, up to 300 people gathered around his table to hear from him, which is really quite astounding wow. and mm-hmm. doesn't mesh with my vision of the ghetto at all, mm-hmm. but even under the most trying of circumstances, even when activity, movement, worship was limited in the ghetto, he continued to host these services every week. And was sort of like grappling with these questions and these issues in real time. Absolutely. People writing, you know, how can God have let the Holocaust happen 10 or 20 years later with a fuller understanding of, of what it was, but like while it was going on, And we have the record of that happening. Okay, yeah, go on. Sorry. No, one of the starkest examples of this comes in 1939. There is a German bombing blitz, so to speak, of Warsaw Mm -hmm. that results in Rabbi Shapira's son and daughter-in-law being killed in the fall of 39. 
And after his son's death, there is a six-week period where we do not have a record of a sermon being delivered, which means either he did not give one or he did not record them. He picks back up with recording these sermons, which to our knowledge, he wrote down on Saturday nights after the Sabbath ended. Mm -hmm. He picks up with the Torah portion of Chaye Sarah, which is the story of the death of the matriarch Sarah immediately after the story of Abraham taking Isaac to be sacrificed mm-hmm. at the incident known as the Akeda. So in his work on Chaye Sarah, Rabbi Shapira speaks about the fact that it is possible for God to push someone too far. Wow which is unusual for him because Uh most of his writings were there to create spiritual fortitude in his congregation and how we've been here before, the Jews have struggled before, but God is with us and that whatever tragedy is being inflicted upon us is for a reason. With this one sermon on Chaye Sarah, he indicates that he really truly believes that Sarah's death was a direct result of her vision of her son about to be sacrificed. That that was too far for her. God had taken her too far mm. astray from what she could tolerate, and that was why her death occurred. She died as like a traumatic response yes. to tragedy, and he's Correct. writing about this a few weeks after the death of his son. Yes. That's just one sermon that we can tie to what was going on in his life or in the ghetto mm-hmm. at that Does time. Does he reference that directly? Or this is no. all sort of oblique? Wow. So we just we know from other sources Correct. that his son died and we see him talking about this, but he's not saying, you know, and here I am grappling with this because my son was just killed six weeks ago. That's one of the amazing things about his writings. Mm-hmm. If you discovered them in a vacuum it is very possible to read them without the knowledge that they were written in the Warsaw Ghetto, that they were written under Nazi occupation. There is no evidence whatsoever that they were written in Poland. He doesn't reference what is going on around him. But if you study each week's sermon side by side with the historical record of what was going on in the ghetto at that time, Mm -hmm. you really can see the parallels. Particularly in 1941, there's very much a change in Rabbi Shapira's tone. I mentioned the sermon that he gave on Chaye Sarah, Mm -hmm. which was dire, but that was really an outlier for his sermons in the years 39 and 40. Before 41, He often indicated that the suffering that the Jews were going through was part of a normal course of history and maybe part of what was going to garner reward for us in the world to come. Uh Or Chevle Mashiach, which we referenced in an earlier podcast, the birth pangs of the Messiah, that this was the tragedy that we needed to go through in order to get to the moment in history when we would be redeemed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a very strong visual image in my mind of people crowding into this apartment in an incredibly difficult time and feeling a sense of empowerment, encouragement, support. Yeah. Like 
everything seems so awful, but here's somebody who's making sense of it and perhaps showing like a positive to it. But it sounds like then at some point that's not the message anymore. In 1941, an individual, Gronitsky, I believe it's pronounced, or it might be Gronitsky, escapes from the Chomno death camp and makes his way to the Warsaw ghetto. Mm-hmm. He reports to the people living in the ghetto what is really going on outside the walls. Not mm-hmm. that their persecution within the ghetto was nothing, mm-hmm. but that it gets even tre- worse. It yeah. gets worse, and a tremendous system of extermination of the Jews was being put into place mm-hmm. outside the walls of the ghetto, and that that's what they had to look forward to. And after the time of this report, which, again, the Ish Kodesh himself does not reference, mm-hmm. but if you take the dates and line them up— Right, like we know when that happened, and we know— because that shook the Warsaw ghetto. Like just Correct. And that shook him. And you see that change in tone mm-hmm. in his weekly sermons, where he goes from— this is something we just have to get through to get to a better place, whether it's in this world or the world to come. And he switches over to this notion that this is something that needs to happen. We don't know why. And God himself is having a hard time watching us suffer this way. And he has closed himself off to the Jews in a chamber because— If he were to watch us suffering, he would act, and that action would destroy the world. It's very Kabbalistic and complicated, but it speaks to someone who could not face the possibility that there was a God who would willingly do terrible things to the people of the world, particularly the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And that's really what Rabbi Shapira is known for. Yeah, it's interesting because it reminds me of what you were saying earlier about his sermon on Chaye Sara and the idea of like a tragedy that is so awful, a person can't bear it anymore. And it sounds like he's then applying the same thing of like, this tragedy is so awful, God can't bear it. And he, he's like personalizing God in that way. And, and therefore God is like less present, maybe. Am I understanding the idea correctly? Yeah, I think so. I think he's saying that God isn't turning his back on us but he's sort of hiding from us right now. Mm-hmm. And we don't know why. Mm-hmm. And he didn't need to know why to have faith, which mm-hmm. I don't think that most people could live that way. Yeah, But I think he knew that the people in the ghetto needed something to cling on to. And that is very much in line with his pedagogy, which we know about from the yeshiva that he started in the 1920s, where he really addressed each student as that student needed to be addressed. He was much less stern Mm -hmm. than other heads of yeshivot at that time, and he really believed in the inner expression of each student. Mm -hmm. He reminds me of another figure from the Warsaw Ghetto, Dr. Janusz Korczak. He was a pediatrician and the head of an orphanage Mm -hmm. in Warsaw, And he lived among his orphans and eventually, despite being offered a chance to escape, accompanied them to their deaths, walked with them with his head held high, with the children dressed 
cleanly and neatly to the Umschlagplatz in Warsaw, which was the railroad junction where the cattle cars were loaded. Mm -hmm. And I kept seeing him pop into my head when I read about Rabbi Shapira because he really created an atmosphere for the children he was leading Mm -hmm. that gave them emotional strength. He had the children read and write and perform plays, and he tried to keep a sense of normalcy for them as long as possible. Rabbi Shapira also, due to him being a well-known individual, was treated slightly better, not by the Nazis, but by the inner workings Mm -hmm. of the ghetto. He was offered a position in a workshop, Many of the other people who worked in the workshop were also well-known rabbis, and there is testimony that the discussion in the workshop while people were recycling used clothing into fabric for the Nazis was just top-level Torah discussion. Wow, yeah. And ultimately, when the ghetto was liquidated, Rabbi Shapira went to a work camp. He was offered a chance to escape from the work camp, but he like Dr. Korchak, basically said, if my Hasidim are not going to be rescued, I'm not going to be rescued. And he was ultimately shot with the entire population of the work camp after uprisings had occurred in Warsaw Mm -hmm. and the death camp at Sobibor and some other places. That might not all be in super chronological order, but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of wonderful historical writing that's been done Mm -hmm. about both Onik Shabbos and the Ish Kodesh, Our educational lead on this podcast, Dr. Henry Abramson, has an amazing book on the topic, on the Torah from the Days of Wrath, that I really recommend. He was really instrumental in helping me prepare this podcast, and he also explained a little bit of the historiography to me, which is that um, after this cache was discovered in 1950, there was an individual in Israel named Baruch Tuvdevani who returned to Warsaw, retrieved the materials from the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw, where it was kind of languishing, Mm -hmm. and published the Eish Kodesh for the first time. And it was only discovered many years later that the first publication of the Eish Kodesh was not 100% consistent with the original manuscript. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the handwritten pages from Rabbi Shapira, you see numerous, numerous changes, cross-outs and footnotes and copy edits. And if you read Dr. Abramson's book, you will see a lot of fascinating material that emanates from these copy edits. You can see how Rabbi Shapira's mind changed about certain things over the course of the war. Wow. Um, So ultimately, several historians, both before Dr. Abramson and Dr. Abramson himself, have written about the manuscript and the different changes. Two, there are two changes that I want to talk about as we wrap up, because I Uh think they really encapsulate the struggle that Rabbi Shapira and the Jews of the ghetto took on as they tried to maintain some sense of spirituality and fidelity to religion under really trying circumstances. One is that on the cover of a manuscript, not of the Ish Kodesh, but of another book that you can see Rabbi Shapira edited during his time in the ghetto and that was included in the archive, under his name, there is something 
crossed out very violently and aggressively. Uh And a modern historian has used breakthrough technological techniques to Mm. reveal what was underneath that cross out. And what it said was, Av Beitin Piazetsna, which means the head of the Jewish rabbinical court in Piazetsna. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Abramson posits that the reason why that was crossed out so violently is that once Rabbi Shapira realized there were no more Jews of Piazetsna, wow. there was no community mm-hmm. to preside over as an Av Beitin, he had to eliminate that title both from the book, but also from his being. Yeah, like how often do we see that in a historical document? Like someone's actual feelings, not them writing, here's how I'm feeling, I'm despairing, or I'm losing this hope, or I'm incredibly horrified and sad about what's happening, but like be able to actually really feel the feeling through what they did. Wow. The other amendment that I want to talk about is with respect to a sermon that Rabbi Shapira gave on the topic of Hanukkah in 1941, he was still writing as though redemption might be upon us. And he spoke about the trials and tribulations that the Jews experienced during persecution. And he also mentioned, we've been here before. The Jews have struggled before. We have been persecuted by this group and that group. And we will come out of this the same way. This is nothing we haven't seen in the past. In 1942, after the escapee from Chelmno had told them what was going on outside, and after things had really deteriorated in the ghetto, Rabbi Shapiro went back and amended his sermon from that time and said, I was wrong. Wow. We have never wow. experienced persecution mm-hmm. like this before. That anecdote sums up the entire thing for me. Of I thought at the beginning, this is a story of just like realizing one's place in history or, or how do we use historical context to like better understand what someone's writing. But it's really a story of the struggle of faith. How does our faith change with us when we encounter the impossible, I guess, for lack of a better term? I think... Rabbi Shapiro was realizing that this is a completely unique situation, hopefully one never to be repeated. And it reminds me of something I discussed with Dr. Abramson, which is that this document, the Aish Kodesh, is sui generis. It's one of a kind. There is absolutely nothing like it in our history, Mm-hmm. where we have a firsthand contemporaneous account of what is going on and how Jews are being treated, but written in a way that requires interpretation. It's a marvelous piece of writing. Yeah. And he tried at the very beginning, I think, to reinforce for his community that Jews have suffered in the past and will suffer in the future. And in the midst of it all, he realized he was in a unique time in Jewish history. I know we're close to the end here. And I almost want to say, like, how do we end on like a positive or optimistic or even like any sort of different note? But but that's sort of the story of this whole document is it doesn't like he doesn't get a chance then to years later give a closing to this in any way, right? Because he doesn't survive. We only get to see what he was grappling with at the time 
and then it's it. Then it's over. For me, there are two takeaways here. Mm -hmm. Um, One is a tremendous amount of gratitude to him and to Emmanuel Ringelblum and to all the people who had the foresight to put together this historical archive because they knew that future generations would need to see it. Whether or not they believed there would be future generations of Jews, that the future of the world needed to see it. Mm. And then also that we are still here and we are still talking about it. And we are able to benefit from both the scholarly Torah work of Rabbi Shapira and also the philosophical challenges that he raises. There is a scholarly debate as to whether or not Rabbi Shapira did lose his faith or not before the end. We certainly don't have time to get into that now, but definitely something to think about. And I just have gratitude to the people who sacrificed themselves to make sure that we know what they went through. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. On that note, thanks for uh, taking the time to listen. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I feel like this story is different than a lot of the other ones that we've talked about, but it's a very moving one. Yes. Tremendously impactful and I really do recommend that any of you who are touched by this story read more about the PSS and Sarebi, read more about the Onik Shabbos archive. It really contains multitudes, not only religious documents, but, you know, things that really illuminate for us what life was like in the ghetto and was put together at great risk to those who collected those items. Mm-hmm. And I think we owe it to them to learn Thank you for listening to Jewish History Unpacked, a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. If you like this show, subscribe on your podcast app of choice and give us five stars and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. Check out Jewish Unpacked for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. And of course, check out our TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. And most importantly, be in touch with Yael and Schwab. Write to us at JewishHistoryUnpacked at JewishUnpacked.com. This episode was hosted by Jonathan Schwab and Yael Steiner. Our education lead is Dr. Henry Abramson. Audio was edited by Rob Perra and were produced by me, Rifki Stern. Thanks for listening. See you next week.